And now, back to David Spada and Elliot Harris for more sports and torts on TalkZone.com. Boy, it is a true pleasure. We get to talk to an NFL Hall of Famer who I watched play when he was with the Oakland Raiders, him and Lester Hayes. They were just unstoppable with the Raiders back in the mid-'80s. Pro Football Hall of Famer Mike Haynes. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you. I see you went to John Marshall High School in Los Angeles. I went to John Marshall Law School in Chicago. I didn't realize there was a John Marshall High School. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's it's really kind of strange. When I when I was going to school there, uh, it was more known for academics than than sports. And um, you know, I played on a football team that didn't. Win. My senior year, we didn't win any games. Um, but um, uh, today, I mean, last year they played in the CIF championship, so it's different now and. Um, the demographics in the whole area changed over the years. The only thing I knew about John Marshall was he was the guy who signed the Constitution real big. Yeah, yeah. We were actually called the Marshall Barristers after him. <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta be careful with that nickname. <laughs> so, so does this mean that uh, UCLA and USC didn't come after you? Uh, well, UCLA came after me and track. And, um, and, but I, you know, back in those days, I think every kid growing up playing football wanted to, uh, in LA, wanted to play at USC when, uh, John McKay was there and, you know, I had a lot of Heisman Trophy winners. And, right. You know, even, even back in those days. Cause you were at ASU and what, Frank Cush was their coach back then? Yeah, exactly. And your football team was pretty good. I mean, I know Danny White was a quarterback before you got there, but you had some NFL players on that team. Oh, we had a lot. Um, you know, guys who went on and had great NFL careers um, before me and after me. Uh, Charlie Taylor, um, Hall of Fame wide receiver for the Washington Redskins, uh, Curly Culp, uh, J.D. Hill, um, Art Malone, Ben Malone, um, just a bunch. And then um, with me, uh, Danny White, Steve Holden, Woody Green, Al Harris. Harris played for the Bears. Um, just a whole bunch of good bunch of good players. Um Played three Fiesta Bowls back in those days. My senior year, we were undefeated and uh, beat Nebraska in the Fiesta Bowl. And those were the days before you had 30 bowl games, you know, and, and almost every team got to go. In, in that era, it, it actually meant something to go to a bowl game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, But, you know, in defense of, uh, the, of, of the way it is now, I, I still think it's pretty exciting. Uh, but you're right. I mean, not very many teams went to bowls, and it meant a lot more. And the Fiesta Bowl, fortunately, it's still recognized as a great bowl, uh, and as it was then. Now, a lot, a lot of coaches will use bowl games as additional, almost an, an early spring practice session. Is that what it ended up being for you guys under Cush? Because he was had a very uh, hard reputation. You know, is you know a tough taskmaster. Yeah, and and deservedly so. Um, you know, we we could beat teams, um, but that it, for him it, it mattered how we beat them. Sometimes we might be in at halftime fourteen to nothing, and he'd come in and you know rip us like we were doing poorly, uh, and we'd go back out the second half and score thirty points. So, <laughs> so you know he. Um, but you know he's he was an interesting guy. Glad a chance uh, had a chance to play for him. My senior year, we only had four uh, six seniors. And uh, the year before, we had more than 20 seniors. And he said that um, the team that I was on my senior year was maybe the best team that he'd ever coached. And right now, it is still the only undefeated um, team since, um, you know, that was back in 1975. They, they've had some other teams that have come close, 
um, but they lost the bowl game. Um, so Coach Cush was on to something. He knew a little bit a little bit about us. And uh, off that team, we had several first-round players, uh, Larry Gordon, linebacker to the Miami Dolphins, Al Harris, a defensive lineman to the Chicago Bears, myself, um, and other guys that went in the early, you know, early rounds in the, in the draft. So we, um, you know, we all, we were putting up a lot of points in those days and, uh, had an unbelievable defense. Um, and, you know, we got it, you know, they're trying to get back to those days now, but it's not getting any easier. Then you get drafted by the Patriots. Was, yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, the Patriots, the year um, I got there in 1976, uh, they were coming off of a terrible season the year before, only three wins. Um, but they had quite a few draft choices. So they had three first-rounders, uh, Tim Fox out of Ohio State, another defensive back, and Pete Brock, an offensive lineman from University of Colorado, and me. And and we still had other guys that came from that uh, in that draft that made our team that year that were all big contributors, and we turned the season around and we had three losses during the regular season. How does a guy who grew up in L.A., went to college in Arizona, deal with new, the New England temperature that tends to get a little brisk come fall? Well, it, it was a culture shock, you know, um, to go back there to play and to feel like that was where I was going to be spending my, you know, next uh, 10 years of my life playing football. Uh, hopefully, um, but um, but I adjusted. Um, I can remember the first time it snowed. I'd never really seen snow come down except in the movies, and uh, I'd been up to the snow. And Southern California is one of the great things about it is you can drive out to the beach and go surfing, or you can you know, drive up to the mountains and go skiing on the same day. And so I'd been up to the snow, obviously, but never really seen it come down. And I'll never forget Tim Fox had invited me over to his home for dinner. And, and I went out to my car, and I went back inside and called him and said, hey, Tim, it's snowing, man. I can't make it. And he started laughing. He laughed so hard. <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you know, I don't think I'll ever live that down. <laughs> you, must have, you must have thought it was easy in the NFL. I mean, you get eight interceptions your rookie year, and you were phenomenal on uh, punt returns. Well, it was the, one of the things I loved to do is to, was to you know, have the ball in my hand. I like to run with it. And... Um, the um, being a rookie, they were every team picked on me because you know you figure where's the weakness of the defense? Let's go after the young guys. And uh, I, I did make a lot of mental mistakes that year. Um, probably led the team in mental errors, um, but um, I would self-correct it. You know, in the middle of the play, like a, for instance, if um, I'd be uh, lined up outside the receiver, backpedaling on the outside shade, and then remember, oh wait a minute, if both the backs go away, I'm supposed to switch the inside shade. <laughs> you know. And so because I was on the outside shade and the quarterback recognized I was on the outside shade, thought I was going to stay on the outside shade, but I would just seem to switch back to the inside shade just as he was throwing the ball. And then <laughs> consequently I'd be in great position for interception. So I almost led the league that year with interceptions and I did lead the league in punt return yards. Um, I didn't, uh, I had a thing back in those days. I never used to fair catch. So my average probably wasn't as high as it could be, but it was one of the higher averages in the league that year, and I led the league in total return yards. And you gave the Patriots their first punt return touchdowns. You had an 89-yarder and a 62-yarder. You remember those? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I thought it was kind of strange that they had that record, that no one had ever returned a punt for a touchdown. Uh, and I knew early on that we would break that um, because of the – 
the commitment that the guys had on special teams. And, um, you know, we had a lot of guys who were just really awesome special teams players, a guy named Dickie Kahn, Jeff Phillips, uh, and Arson. We had a lot of starters on our punt return team. So it wasn't like taking, you know, guys who weren't playing. These are, these are guys who were excellent athletes and wanted to score. And so I, I'm kind of lucky to be the guy that was uh, chosen to be the returner. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of fun, and every game people used to, I think, love to come see if I was going to fair catch or not. <laughs> uh, and um, it was, you know, it was a, just a, a good time to be back there and a good time to be a Patriot fan. How did you end up with the Raiders? I never got that because there was no free agency back then. Well, I was having some contract problems, and um, one thing led to another, and I jumped on an airplane um, but the way I got there, it's, it's just really too long. We'd, it would, you know, you almost have to dedicate a whole show to that. Um, but, uh, but, um, I jumped on an airplane and flew out and uh, signed a contract with the Raiders, which really technically you couldn't do, but, um, because the, the Patriots still own my rights. But, um, I played out my contract and, and, um, and there's really no real good reason. It was challenged in the, you know, by the league. Um, but, um, in the end, everybody decided, that it might be the best thing to happen, uh, and they let me go to the Raiders, and they gave the uh, Patriots a couple of uh, great draft choices for me. So uh, I was happy because it, you know, got me back home into Los Angeles. And this happens like toward the end of end of the season that, that all this is going on. It's not like okay, this is an off season transition. How difficult was yeah. that? Uh, it was pretty difficult. It was in October, and um, you know, my wife was pregnant with the baby, and. Uh, and it was pretty hard just to be home wondering if I was going to play that season. Uh, you're right. It was very difficult, in fact, but, um, but everything worked out. And in the end, um, it was one of the better decisions I made in my life. Yeah. I mean, you played what five regular season games and then you're playing in the Super Bowl. They had to be phenomenal. <laughs> that didn't get any better than that. And the Raiders had a great team. Uh, um, they just had a young corner, uh, getting Ted Watts out of, uh, Texas, um, one of the Texas schools, and he was playing great, but at the, just like when I was a rookie, they would pick on him, and I think uh, even though the Raiders would still win the game, um, they felt like they wanted to shore up that and uh, take that off the table, you might say, for, for other teams, and he brought me in, and uh, they didn't pick on me, so <laughs> I wish they had, but uh, they didn't, and that helped the defense, and we went on to... Uh, you know, win the AFC championship, uh, beat the Seattle Seahawks, and then on the Super Bowl to play the uh, defending champions, uh, the Washington Redskins. Now, you also, in that secondary, you had Lester Hayes. Was there any confusion between Hayes and Haynes? Uh, no, the only difference um, between the two of us really was just the, the, um, the spelling of our names. <laughs> we were both uh, love playing corner, love playing man-to-man, and... Um, um, you know, like getting after people. Lester was a little bit more aggressive in, uh, in, in the way that he uh, approached the game than me. I mean, I wouldn't call anybody out and tell him, I'm going to shut you out, or, you know, I wouldn't say anything like that uh, because I wouldn't want to say anything that was going to uh, amp up your uh, um, testosterone or, or, you know. <laughs> and so, um, so for me, I, I try to just keep it low-key, but uh, with Lester, that was hard to do, and I think as a result of it, though, we would always get the best effort from our opponents and uh, 
made us uh, bring out our A game a lot more often probably than we would have to do uh, normally or otherwise. But at least your teammates would shake hands with you. No one wanted to shake hands with Lester with the stick them on him. Well, that didn't last for very long. You know, when they, they started to uh, outlaw the, the stick them because it was catching on, not only with Lester because he led the, the the NFL that year with interceptions. He was the MVP of our of our uh, league um, because of that great year. Um, but because of that, other guys were starting to use it. And when he gets on a football, you can't get it off. You know, you have to take it in the back and uh, use some kind of special chemical to get it off. And it ruined a lot of balls. And so they were going through too many balls for a game, and they outlawed it because of that. Now, with the Raiders, you had a 97-yard Interception return for a touchdown against, yeah. uh, was that Marino quarterbacking Miami? Yep, that was against uh, the Miami Dolphins, and I was covering Mark Duper, and, you know, um, a quick little three-step drop type play, and I stepped in front of it. Duper, uh, I'm not sure, you know, I was really kind of playing. I've never I've seen him a million times since then, and uh, never really asked what, what he was doing, because you would think that one of them made a mistake. Either Dan made a mistake or he made a mistake because he threw the ball uh, and Duper was breaking out. And the, and I looked, took a little peek, and I saw the ball coming. And so I just in front and grabbed it and, you know, off to the races, tried to get to the other end zone before he caught me. And that guy was one of the world-class sprinters, <laughs> like a clip branch type, you know, he could really run. Was there a point on that return that you said, uh, I, I see nothing but, you know, the end zone at the other end, and you knew you had six points. Well, I knew I had six as long as he didn't catch me, and that was that was my only concern. I, because when I when I caught the ball, I really lost sight of him. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know if he was right behind me or or deep in the end zone. I had no idea. So, um, and I didn't want to take a look to my right to find him there. So I just kept looking down downfield and uh, kept going. Because you knew Marino wasn't going to catch you. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> so you go from the Raiders to working for the NFL. I mean, you played for the Raiders. Al Davis was the owner, and Davis and Pete Rozelle were constantly at it. I mean, I think Davis drove Rozelle nuts. And then you go to the NFL. Was that a change for you? Uh, it was a great change because I think it. Um, I got really educated at that point with with what the league was all about. And I think as a player um, during my era, I think we we didn't really think that the league really cared about the players and didn't care about the game as much as it should, you know. And I found out by going there that that was totally wrong. And uh, and the, probably the biggest um, thing that the two needed to do, the players and the league, was to have a, have more chances to talk and uh, to communicate because um, through just talking about common issues. I think they would have come up on the same side of the table every single time. And, um, you know, C- Commissioner Tagliabue, who was commissioner when I joined the league, um, was really good at doing that and calling players in to talk. And, and so was Roger. Roger Goodell, the current commissioner, is also very good at getting information from all the sides, uh, you know, all the stakeholders, um, before he, you know, takes a, a position. So, it was probably the, one of the best things that ever happened for me because I know that when it comes to the game, uh, the players, the safety, that a lot of times what we think is like they maybe didn't care. Uh, it's that they just didn't know what was going on. Everybody assumed 
that they did. And and I and I know from um, being there that that's not that wasn't always the case. Well, and, and nowadays, it, you know, there seems to be a lot of polarization between sides on things, and uh, there's a lot of safety issues. You have uh, replacement officials and things like that, and it's sort of an organized chaos. It, you know, you, you would think an enterprise as big as the NFL and all the money involved, they could somehow get all their ducks in a row and have things run smoothly. Does it amaze you when, when things don't go smoothly? Uh, it does amaze me, but, you know, um, but some, you know, sometimes I don't have, have all the facts and I may not side my, my position may not be supported by, um, you know, I may not have enough information to really support a great position. So, um, with the, with the referees, the officials, I'd like to see them taken care of. I mean, they are, they contribute to the game. I don't even know, to be honest with you, what their real issue is, why they're, you know, why, um, you know, they're not on the same page. Um, I don't get that, but I don't, you know, I'm not trying to get it either. So, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm sitting down trying to figure it out. I, I know that, um, those guys really, really work hard to be the best officials they can be. And, uh, I worked in the league office when and I saw them do their work firsthand, um, uh, on, during the season, um, during the off season and the commitment to the head official and football operations and to getting it right. Uh, and even to the degree that coaches and players will communicate with the league office about different penalties and different things, all with the idea of trying to get it right, to get everybody on the right page and making sure that, um, that they're making the right decision, uh, in the best interest of the game. And as a consequence, you know, things are, uh, much better. The safety is, is huge, hugely important and taking completely different now than it was, say, when I played in the 70s and 80s. Um, and there's, uh, you know, they're looking all the time at now at equipment and, um, um, and, and all kinds of the things, which I think are, which bode well for the future of the game. And for me, because it was my sport, uh, I'd like to see the game, um, Played all over all over the world and just continue to grow. And then um, when you look at where it started and where it is now, um, you like to think that that does have a chance of happening um, over my lifetime. So I'm excited about it. Uh, it's not a perfect. It's not perfect. Uh, probably never will be perfect because of just different things uh, that are always going on with technology and questions and answers and um, you know even the way we look at benefits and things like that. Um, overall, I think you have to say it's all been going in the right direction, in a good direction for the growth of the game. Your former teammate, Gene Upshaw, when he was head of the NFLPA, got a lot of criticism from former players like Joe DeMore and Mike Ditka saying that he sold out to former players. How did you feel about that? Well, you know, for me, it's very hard because Gene was also a friend of mine. Um, and, you know, I never really played with him as a Raider, but I did play with him in the, in Pro Bowl games. I got to know him. And even when I got the job in the NFL office and our, my department that I managed, um, player development, um, I had a lot of interaction with the Players Association and I saw Gene quite a bit. Um, so I knew that I knew where his heart was. I knew what he was trying to do. And I didn't, I can't say that I always, un, um, 
agreed with what he did, but I knew where he was, you know, where where he was focused. And some of the things that he said, I really didn't understand why he said them, and that really upset a lot of the guys um, that we all had a lot of respect for him. But um, um, I, I, so he, he put himself in a situation where there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, room for criticism. Um, some of the things that he did and said and supported. Um, but there was also another side of him that was very good and, and did a lot of good things for players. And I, and I, and I just, the thing I hate is, is that, um, all of those, all the good things that he did will be, you know, put under a table and no one will remember those. They'll remember, uh, the, the things that they wished he had done. And I, and I, but I totally understand that. And I, you know, I still, um, I can't, you know, I can't really say that, um, um, you know, the way that a lot of folks are looking at him, former players are looking at him, is is, is the wrong way because it, I, I see exactly what they're seeing. I see the exact same things that they're seeing. And I wish it wasn't that way. I wish Gene would have done things a little bit differently. But um, And he's not here to tell us why he did them. And, and he was constantly trying to defend himself. Um, and, again, I, you know, like I said, I would see him in different situations and talk to him uh, privately and, he would share a different side of the story that he could not share um, publicly with other folks. And so um, I still think he'll be remembered as one of the great um, players of all time and one of the guys that really led change for the Players Association um, and, um, and unfortunately didn't get to the, get things done the way that we all would have loved him to have, uh, um, have completed for us. But um, you know, hopefully that will happen in time. He got. Let's just say he got the ball rolling. Maybe he didn't. Maybe this judgment. Um, you know, he'll be judged by a lot of people um, by how his decisions impacted them uh, individually. And a lot of the guys in the pre '93 guys, like myself, um, I think there's real good reason for criticism. Now, in 1997, you were elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame after having retired, uh, I guess, last season in 89. Did, did you see that coming? Did you think it was overdue? Did you think it was early? How did you view all that? I thought I thought I had a couple more years left in me. Um, I saw, you know, you know, once you've been in the league for a while, you, you can see, you know, how guys are being moved around and things, and you see them getting them ready to play. And, and, I, and I could see that. Um, I just I wasn't ready to stop playing. I really didn't feel like I got beat beat out, and um, and so that was made a little bit tough to to leave. And so when they asked me to you know uh, step down and let the other guys play in front of me, it was hard. You know, how do you say, sure, great, this is wonderful. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, no. um, but um, hindsight is I wished I had have done that I, you know, because I, maybe I would have gotten three more years in and I would have been able to. Um, to do a lot of a lot of things that I'd wanted to do anyway, um, but my um, my attitude, I guess, about the end of my career and how it was going to end um, was, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, no one knows it, but I'm I wished I had done things differently. You know, I had a chance to do things differently, and I I think I might have made the wrong choice, but um, you never know. Is there ever going to be another owner like L. Davis in the NFL? Oh, sure, maybe. <laughs> you know, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think there, I don't think there could possibly anyone be anyone like Al. 
Um, one is just the era that he was around and, you know, the, the friends that he made and the impact that he had on the league. All the great things that he did as an owner um, have been adopted, really, into into the NFL. Different things that he did that were really special. You take, you know, um, when work got out that um, that he was doing it, other owners started doing it. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think they, they probably owe him a lot, um, but his, his personality um, was one where he walked alone a lot. Uh, and so I don't know that he's – I hope he will go down in history the way he should go down in history as one of the greatest owners of all time. Um, with all of us that are alive now that he has his due place in history. What was your first time in Canton, Ohio like? Um First time was um, <laughs> very tough because it was um, inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That was my first time there, and it's a whirlwind. I mean, you're going from one banquet room to the next, uh, you know, celebrating um, something, either a, a, a charitable cause or uh, or doing, you know, being introduced as you know the next guys are going to be inducted this weekend and. It was a, a blur. It was a blur. You didn't really get to enjoy too much time with your friends until after the ceremony and you had your little party and um, get a chance to be with your family and friends. But for the most part, before that, it's very difficult to have a good, you know, to, to enjoy it. You have to come back and enjoy it the following year. I know September is a special month to you because it's uh, National Prostate Awareness Month. How did you get, inv- get involved with that? Well, actually, it's a good segue from the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, comments we were making. Uh, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the NFL and the American Neurological Association, they had partnered to offer free screenings to retired players, and they kicked it off at the Hall of Fame. And um, being there, as it been at that time, I was an employee of the NFL, they asked me to go down to where they were doing the screening because they were going to do a public service announcement. And while I was there, the ladies that were working there, I now call them angels, um, they convinced me that I should take this simple blood test and I might encourage other guys to do it. So I did. Uh, and um, with that, the doctor called me in and started asking me about my PSA and what was my baseline PSA. And that was the first time I had heard of PSA, uh, you know, uh, for blood tests. And PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen um, not public service announcement. <laughs> and so anyway, the um, the doctor scared me when he gave me all these statistics about one in six men would be diagnosed with prostate cancer in their lifetime. And when you compare that to one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in, in their lifetime, I I really wondered why I hadn't heard of this before. And I, everybody's heard of breast cancer and breast cancer awareness month and what a woman needs to do if she has breast cancer, how she determines it, if there's something, you know, what some of the signs are or symptoms of breast cancer might be. But um, most men don't know where the pro- prostate gland is, what it does. They don't know that one in six men are going to be diagnosed with it. A lot of men will tell you they don't know any man that has prostate cancer because men just don't talk about it. And so when, um, when, when I heard that more than half the men that are going to get it, are going to be African-American men. Um, well, when I got back home, I called my primary care doctor and asked a lot of questions about my PSA. And he shared with me that my most recent PSA 
what it was, and um, then I shared with him what my PSA was at this free screening, and he looked at my chart and he saw that, wow, it's been you know raising or rising um, quite aggressively over the last two years, and so he recommended a biopsy because I was also African American, um, and with the biopsy it came back positive, so I found out that I did have prostate cancer, uh, and um, fortunately for me, we caught it early. And that's when it's most treatable, and that's when men need to deal with their prostate cancer. And so I became the spokesperson because I got educated, and the AUA asked me if I would help them get the word out. And I said, yeah, this is crazy that most men don't know anything about this disease, and it's pretty rampant among men. And it runs in families, and it's also... um, you know, African-American men are higher risk. So it made it easy for me to say, yeah, I, I want to help. I, I want to make a difference here. And um, and I've been doing that for the last four years. And the um, our campaign has grown. The NFL has made a lot of public service announcements that are played in NFL stadiums. Um, we now have um, things or items that we auction off on the NFL auction, NFL.com. Um, we have uh, relationships with more than 500 hospitals. Um, where um, they do educational um, camp, you know, educational seminars or conferences, you know, in a local community, and invite people in. We have retired players and current players coming. Also, to a lot of these hospitals to help uh, encourage men to come. Um, and it's just, you know, the campaign's just been growing and growing. We, we, our goal is to make a dent in the number of men that that die from this disease. If, if we know about it, and I, I'm hoping that the men who do get it we'll start to talk about it and encourage other men to get active and um, and hopefully catch their prostate cancer early like I did when it's uh, easily treatable. So so yeah, it's, uh, I mean, for me, it, you can tell, I'm, I hope you can tell, I'm, I'm super passionate about this. I uh, feel, feel really blessed that the NFL and the AUA, and that's the, the large um, urological um, membership organization uh, all made up of doctors, um, they're the leaders in the research, and they're the ones that manage our website, uh, knowyourstats.org. And they're also the ones that if anyone has any questions, they can go to that website and find answers. So I think we're the best resource for information when it comes to prostate cancer. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be teamed up with a lot of guys that feel the same way I do. Um, we've had Deacon Jones and Ronnie Lott and Marcus Allen um, this year we had uh, Harry Carson um, go out with me on these satellite media tours and just encourage men to get off the couch and get educated about their prostate health. Because men uh, at age 40, is that's when the AUA is recommending men get educated uh, or, and start to have a conversation with their doctor about their prostate health um, um, because that is the best thing that we can do if we're going to try and... Um, put up a good defense against prostate cancer. Yeah. And as, as you say, the, the screening for it is so simple, and with the treatment for it, if caught early enough, is reasonably simple. It, it It's just getting, the, getting it diagnosed, getting it taken care of early, and it, it's not like, oh, I have prostate cancer and my life's over, this is the sort of thing that you can have dealt with and recover from it and go on and, and live, you know, a relatively normal existence. 
Oh, yeah. Relatively normal is, a, is the right way to think about it. See, most men are going to get prostate cancer. Most men are going to get it. But you don't have to die from it, and that's the thing. So if you know you have it, there's one of the treatment options is what they call watchful waiting. And so they just monitor it. And so if, if it doesn't uh, increase or get more aggressive, you can live your whole life without doing anything, just monitoring it. But if it gets aggressive, you need to know it. And when you know it, then you can treat it. And me, I had a radical prostatectomy, means that I had my prostate taken out. It's a relatively new um, um, surgery. They use a, these uh, Da Vinci robots to, to um, perform the surgery. And I use that. And I, I guess nowadays more than 90% of the surgeries are, are done with this Da Vinci robot. Um, but it's minimally invasive. Um, so I was in the hospital one day, out the next day. Um, I had a catheter on, which is no fun. You're walking around with a, like a urine catheter, you know, hidden under my pants, you know. Um, but, but that's about eight days. Take that out. And then it's back, to, almost back to life to normal. You know, it really, there is a, a, a period of months where, you know, you're gaining strength and, and things are going on in your body that are healing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm totally back to being the way I was. Um, because we caught it early. In, in the old days, they would have impotence problems and incontinence problems, um, but right. those those are um, they don't happen as often anymore. And uh, and largely it's because of technology and different advances that have been made in several different treatment areas, not just the, the robot, the Da Vinci robot, in several different areas. And uh, I I just always encourage men to talk to their doctor about them and start to get educated because. It's going to happen, and you just want to be ready when it does. They got the right spokesman. You're a great defensive player, and you're great talking about defending against prostate cancer. It seems like you got everything covered. Well, um, I got a lot of great teachers out there, I can tell you that. So thank you. I appreciate that. No problem. I just wish the NFL would basically have the players wear, like, a color or a band to promote this, like they do breast cancer with the pink. Well, that's the goal, and, you know, hopefully we'll get there um, again the women, they do such a great job of promoting the, the breast cancer, um, and we, we have to catch up to them. And we've, we've actually recruited a lot of women to help us. Um, for a lot of men, me, you know, guys hearing me on the, on the radio won't be enough for them to get up and go and call their doctor. But um, when we recruit their wives and their sisters and their moms, um, they have a huge impact on these men. They'll take them, they'll take them to the doctor's office. So, you know, um, we're getting out there. We'll, we'll get there, and it, hopefully it, that's when you know, when you see guys wearing blue-tip shoes and things uh, like they do, blue gloves like they do for um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is next month in October, um, then you'll know that we have, well, I want to say we've reached our goal, but um, we're reaching our goal. We're, we're closer to reaching. I think we'll, we'll say we reached our goal when we don't have to worry about prostate cancer ever again. All righty. Thank you to Mike Haynes, Pro Football Hall of Famer. Thank you to bikini competitor and lovely lady Lisa Eveleth for another scintillating show of sports and torts with David Spade and Elliot Harris. Many thanks to our producer, Dave Olson. And tune in again next time on TalkZone.com. <laughs>